Good morning. And uh, today uh, we are going to be doing lesson number nine in the quarterly, the sanctuary. And uh, let's go ahead and start class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will fill our hearts and minds. We will uh, be able to learn and discern the truths you have for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. The title this week is The Pre-Advent Judgment. But before we get into the, the, the lesson, um, I, I don't know, if for, for those of you who haven't heard, uh, within the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church, North American Division and, and Inter-European Division both voted to approve ordination of women to the gospel ministry. Did everybody hear that already? Okay. And uh, from, from Spectre Magazine, this is what a uh, little, little section from the Inter-European Division's recommendation uh, stems from several points. One, the Bible does not spec- specifically define what ordination for pastoral ministry is. It's not, it's not defined. There's, uh, two, there are no direct statements in the Bible either commanding or prohibiting women's ordination. Three, as the church felt free to develop its organizational structure to further its mission based on biblical principles, uh, Division Biblical Research uh, Council members consider ordination not as a doctrinal biblical issue, but something that must be handled at an administrative level. Uh, Four, there are no clear biblical principles that would require or guide the application of the principle of headship in the family or the church. Uh, Six, the Old Testament priesthood has its fulfillment in the unique priesthood of Christ, which is the basis for the priesthood of all believers. And the last, Biblical Research Council or committee members were unclear over why ordination requires a differentiation between genders that doesn't exist on other levels of ministry or service, such as teachers, deacons, prophets, and leaders. And so based on all those reasons, the two divisions now have voted to ordain women. What do you think about their conclusions? How long have those how long have those those identified realities or facts been true? Ever since Christ, those those facts have been true. Um, so, what took so long for them to recognize it? You see, this is a good example of what we call unfolding truth, and it's unfolding because our minds have to. Uh, basically disentangle themselves from all of our biases, preconceived ideas, prejudices, um, you know, uh, cultural um, biases, all these things that, that plug up our thinking. It takes time to, to disentangle our minds before sometimes we can recognize truth. Do you think women's ordination is the only idea in Christianity that is like this? I do that as a preamble to give an example about how the church can actually develop an idea, change an idea, and actually come to an opposite position that it once held on a subject over the course of time. Do you think the pre-advent judgment is one of these things that, that has the, uh, we have the opportunity to advance our understanding further? You say you hope so. <laughs> well, as you think of the pre-advent judgment, uh, what comes to mind? Uh, whose benefit is it? What what's going on? Well, um, yeah, an investigation. Let, let me give a little history, uh, a little history of this this doctrine. And William Miller was a Baptist preacher who studied Daniel and Revelation prophecies back in the early 19th century and concluded that based on Daniel 8:14 and 2300 days to years, uh, the sanctuary will be cleansed. That that the sanctuary is the earth. The Lord is coming back, and that was the second coming. 
And he had a huge following in North America of people who bought into this interpretation of prophecy. And we all know that in 1844, the Lord didn't return, and there was a great disappointment. Most of the people who identified themselves as Millerites, and I understand, and you think about the population back then, there's, there's over 180,000 of them back then in 1830s. It was quite a, quite a large movement at that time. But most of them went back to their denominational churches. A handful, though, uh, went back to the Bible and, and dug deeper and, and concluded, you know what? The Bible nowhere teaches that the earth is a sanctuary. So they dug a little deeper and they found there's an idea of a heavenly sanctuary. And so this led to this idea of the pre-advent judgment or doctrine, which uh, Christ enters the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and initiates his final phase of work before the advent. But this doctrine has been debated within the Adventist church since its inception and has gone under a progressive transformation since 1844. Initially, after the rejection of the earth as the sanctuary, the first new interpretation was 1844 was the close of probation. And that only, uh, and only those that were saved in 1844 were going to be saved, and there's no more new people could be saved. Well, that didn't last real long, because they realized people were still being saved and coming to the Lord, so that wasn't, so it advanced beyond that. And then it went to this idea of Christ moving from the holy to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, uh, with an investigation of records to determine who would, uh, who would come up in the first resurrection. And then later the idea was added that, well, angels are also investigating to see who's going to be safe neighbors in heaven. This was kind of added, uh, for some people. It brought some comfort, evidently. And then, and then this also was, was uh, added in, this idea that, um, God's government was being vindicated through this process. All of this was kind of evolving over time with this. But there's still been controversy. In 1887, Dudley Canwright questioned the, the doctrine and chose to leave the church uh, because, of, uh, because of it and became a very strong critic. In 1905, Ballinger, uh, Albion Ballinger, was disfellowshipped for questioning the doctrine. In 1930, William Fletcher resigned because of questions about this doctrine. In 1931, Louis Canrotti uh, had his ministerial credentials removed and chose to leave the church because of this. In 1945, Harold Snyde, a former professor at Southern what is now Southern Adventist University, withdrew from the church because of questions about this doctrine. 1956, Robert Grieve, an Australian leader, had questions about the investigative judgment portion of this, and his ministerial credentials were withdrawn, and he left the church. And of course, probably the most famous that we remember is 1979. In 1980, Desmond Ford went public with questions about the sanctuary, which resulted in a, the Glacier View conference and meeting in 1980, and a month after the meeting, his credentials were revoked by the church, and... That resulted in, over the next uh, eight years, from 1980 to 1988, uh, the resignation and, and leaving of the church of 182 pastors in, uh, in Australia and New Zealand, which is about 40% of the church pastorate at that time. And then since 1980, most people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church have been too afraid to ask any legitimate questions for fear the church administration will take action against them like they did Desmond Ford. And so what's happened since is that this, this doctrine has stayed stagnant and frozen because people are afraid that they'll be branded as a heretic or as non-believer if they should have honest inquiry. So, question to the class. Can we explore the question of the investigative judgment honestly, with sincere hearts, searching for the unfolding truth, or must we shy away, parrot back the standard lines, and refuse to investigate the investigative judgment? Can, or can we explore this, uh, this doctrine honestly? Can we do that? Well, I, I'm going to share with you, and this is, this is fairly detailed, but I'm going to share with you my unfolding understanding as long as we agree to a couple points. 
I'm not presenting a final word on this. My understanding is developing. I certainly may not have every position I put out here correct, and I'm just honestly asking questions and investigating and, and looking to harmonize these ideas with the totality of Scripture. Can we do this, or do you, would you want me to just parrot back the standard line? <laughs> okay. My approach, actually, is on the landscape of, of a controversy that encompasses the universe over God's character that began in heaven prior to human sin. And with that in mind, the questions that came to my mind as I began to investigate, well, these are some of the questions. Maybe you had these same questions. Why does the heavenly sanctuary need cleansing? Why? And from what? By what means is the, is the sanctuary cleansed? And who cleanses it? Is, it cle- is the cleansing related to judgment? If so, who is being judged? If it began in 1844, why does it take so long? Who needs to investigate? And who needs the investigation? What relevance does any of this stuff going on in a sanctuary in heaven have to do with my life here on earth today? And does the Bible teach any sanctuary in existence on earth or in heaven other than the one that's in heaven in 1844 and since. So uh, those are some of the questions I had as I went into this. And then I guess, why can't we just accept the historical view without probing deeper? Well, I read this quotation, and, and because this is a uniquely Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, there's no other church that actually holds this doctrine, we're going to necessarily need to reference some historical documents uh, of our church. Um, so we're going to do that. And this is one of those documents. It came out of a book called Christ's Object Lessons, page 132. It was written in 1900. So if you think about the evolution of this doctrine, where we were in 1900, we're really at, at a place where most of this has been settled. Okay, Most of what we teach today is all, uh, we're still prior 1900 ideas are being taught. So this is after the development of what I suggested to you of this investigative judgment. And this is what, is what was said in, in, in 1900. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mystery. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are opened to our understanding far more than we do. It is our privilege to understand these themes. So, so from this passage, I drew this idea that whatever we developed up to 1900, it was still full, not fully developed. There was more to learn, more to understand, more to grasp, more to to press forward in advance. As a physician, one of the first things we're taught is how to diagnose. Because if your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is usually wrong. Exactly. So we want to really diagnose first. And so some diagnostic questions. What sanctuary needs cleansing? What sanctuary? It would be important to figure out that. And what is the problem with the sanctuary that it needs cleansing. And after we answer those two questions, then we can look at how is the sanctuary cleansed. So first, what, what sanctuary needs cleansing? The, the, the founders of the SDA church described something called the heavenly sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary needs cleansing. Question, is that the only sanctuary the Bible teaches was in existence in 1844? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. 
Or one of the founders of the SDA Church, back at the time this was being formed, wrote the following. This is in uh, Education 34 to 36. In the building of the sanctuary as a dwelling place for God, Moses was directed to make all things according to the pattern of the things in heaven. God called him into the mount and revealed to him heavenly things. And in their similitude, the tabernacle, with all that pertained to it, was fashioned. So you're getting what's described here. Okay, we've got this thing they're going to build in Israel, and it's being patterned after something. Now notice what comes next. So to Israel, whom he desired to make his dwelling place, he revealed his glorious ideal of character. The pattern was shown them in the mount when the law was given from Sinai and when God passed before Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. The purpose of which it was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls glistening gold, reflecting in rainbow hues, the curtains inwrought with cherubim, the fragrance of ever-burning incense pervading all, the priests robed in spotless white, and in the deep mystery of the inner place, above the mercy seat, between the figures of the bowed worshiping angels, the glory of the holiest. In all, God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. For the human soul. Get your mind around that. It was the same purpose long afterwards set forth by the Paul, know ye not that ye are a temple of God? So forth. And then this quote from Desire of Ages 161. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that, get your mind around this, Every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. We are not a temple. He's not dwelling in our hearts and minds anymore. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple in Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. The temple is supposed to... uh, How how many times in this doctrine that we're going to try to unfold today is it taught that that Old Testament system, that Old Testament building, is to teach us about a building in heaven? How many times is that presented? Yeah, but what's said here by by one of the persons who found that doctrine is that... Um, God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building. The Seventh-day Adventists said not... Wait, wait, no, I didn't say that. Okay. <laughs> they did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The court of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart defiled by the presence of sensual passions and unholy thoughts. Now, we're talking about cleansing the sanctuary. Notice this next sentence. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, and the evil habits that corrupt the soul. And then she quotes Malachi 3. The Lord whom you seek shall come suddenly to his temple. He will come as a a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, and he will cleanse the Levites. Who's being cleansed when he comes to his temple? What's being cleansed? 
the Levites, which are the priesthood of believers. Yes, yes. So, do we believe that the sanctuary of the human soul needs cleansing from sin? Do we believe that? Yes. Was this, was this sanctuary of the human soul on earth in 1844? One of the assumptions the Millerites, and I say Millerites because the Millerites made these assumptions because there wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist church until 1863. So the Millerites made these assumptions was that the only sanctuary available at 1844, since the sanctuary in, the, in Jerusalem was gone, was the one left in heaven. They failed to recognize that there was another sanctuary being talked about, the sanctuary of the human soul. They ignored that. Could that affect the conclusions that we draw? So what about the heavenly sanctuary doctrine then? This idea of a sanctuary in heaven, does it need cleansing? Well, I guess we need to ask first, what is the heavenly sanctuary? Does inspiration, if we use in the Bible, does the Bible give us any insight as to what constitutes this sanctuary in heaven? Well, Ephesians 2, 19-22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. Or 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices and so forth. Does the Bible, if we use it, do we have to use this idea of living stones and say, okay, the the sanctuary in heaven is, is constructed out of living beings. It's physical, it's real, it's not mystical, it's not vapor, it's made out of real physical matter, and those and, and every block is a living being. Any other text that could support this idea? Well, there's one in Revelation that says those who are victorious will be a pillar in the temple of God, and never will they leave it. Now, if we're going to take it concretely, like some critics of my position like to do, then does that mean when we get up there, we're turned to stone and we're stuck for all eternity in a building? Or does it mean that we never leave the temple because we are the temple? No matter where we go, we're still part of the temple. Well, there are many quotes like the, like the, the and there are other references in the Bible there are quotes like the two I gave you from Desire of Ages and Education that, 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 that make it clear that that was an object lesson for the soul. But that's not clear enough for some. So here's one more quote from one of the founders. out of three manuscript release, page 231. And this really should leave no doubt. Because it actually explicitly tells you in this what the heavenly sanctuary is constructed out of. First paragraph actually lays the groundwork, and then the next paragraph, second paragraph, goes into what it's built. The first tabernacle, built according to God's direction, was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple, not made with hands a temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house, all prepared for use. Next paragraph. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work. We are taken from the quarry of the world 
The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are as the probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones, we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. Does that leave much room here? Is this how you've been taught about the investigative uh, judgment doctrine? That that, that there is a real physical temple in, in heaven. There is. But what's it built out of? You can get a glimpse, in my view, you get a glimpse of this in Job chapter 1. When all the sons of God came and gathered before him. This is where God dwells in his intelligent beings. They're gathered together. Let's go on. Does the sanctuary of the human soul need cleansing? Yes. What about the sanctuary in heaven? Well, if it's constructed out of beings, then wouldn't it also need cleansing? What is it that defiles? Satan defiled the heavenly sanctuary by defiling the membership of the church here on earth who are actual building blocks of the heavenly house. So the sanctuary in heaven and the sanctuary of the human soul both need cleansing. Let's start with the sanctuary in heaven. Where did sin originate? With whom? And where was his position of, if we say a, a, a job position, where would he occupy? And, and what would he call that place in the, in the symbol system? That, that's a place in what part of the sanctuary? In the most holy in the sanctuary. So before there was a human being, was Satan sinning in heaven? Yes. Was that sanctuary contaminated by Satan's lies in heaven? Yes. And so it says in Patriarchs and Proverbs 3.38, From the opening of the great controversy has been Satan's purpose to misrepresent God's character, to excite rebellion against his law, and, to, uh, and this work appears to be crowned with success. In the opening, this is what was going on. Satan, angel formerly known as Lucifer, occupying that position in heaven, in the most holy place, sinned in that sanctuary. So the first defilement of the heavenly sanctuary was not your sin or my sin. It was Lucifer's sin. That defiled the heavenly sanctuary. Anybody, anybody have discomfort with that? Well, get, get your mind around this. Oh, and by the way, and his lies not only defiled his own mind, he defiled the building blocks. At least one-third of the angelic building blocks were defiled and corrupted by his lies. And so listen to this out of Ezekiel chapter 28, 14 through 18. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God and walked among the fiery stones. So who are we talking about? You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. But by your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. What's that mean? Desecrated your sanctuaries. What do you think it means? In God's order of government, in God's order of government, do we have any reason to believe in God's order of government that there are organization to the angelic host? 
Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Remember, remember when, when the, the, the uh, demons were in the pigs? Mm-hmm. Or before they went, they were in the demonic, demoniac. Jesus said, you know, what's your name? Name is? Legion, for we are many. They're organizational. It talks about principalities and powers. Hierarchies. Organizational. Do you think this is a reference not only to himself, but to all those sanctuaries who were subordinate to him and that he led? All those intelligent angels were defiled. All those sanctuaries. You defiled your sanctuaries. All the places that I trusted you with. All the, all, the, all the angels that I trusted you to lead and teach. When you left my presence as the, as, the, as the bearer of light, the light bearer, you to go out and you were to fill those sanctuaries with more light about me, but you corrupted them with lies. What do you think? Hmm. Well, this is out of Review and Herald, February 18, 1890. Satan had accused God of requiring self-denial of the angels when he knew nothing of what it meant himself and when he would not himself make any self-sacrifice for others. This was the accusation that Satan made against God in heaven, and after the evil one was expelled from heaven, he continually charged that the Lord was exacting... continued charged the Lord with exacting service which he would not render himself. Christ came to the world to meet these false accusations and to reveal the Father. And this is Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. The very picture, he was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. So from what does the sanctuary in heaven need cleansing? Could it possibly be lies and misrepresentations about God? Could it need cleansing from that? First, from the lies that Satan told in heaven, that God is selfish, he's unwilling to serve, uh, he's severe, he's exacting. But what about then, that's the sanctuary in heaven. Before man was even around, these lies are up there being told, it's being contaminated, corruption is happening in the hearts of angels. But what about the sanctuary of the human soul? What's, what's the first thing that corrupted the sanctuary of the human soul? This is out of Review and Herald. January 5, 1886. Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. What was it that contaminated their sanctuary? And we have the Genesis account of that. This is just describing it. Did God really say in the day you eat? Oh, no. He's trying to keep you down. You can't trust what he says. Was it that contaminated their sanctuary? Lies about God. Remember last week? Lies, believe, break the circle of love and trust. Okay? So the first thing to defile the sanctuary in heaven? Lies about God. The first thing to defile the sanctuary of the human soul? Lies about God. Both the same thing. And it was only after that that we have all those other things, those selfish lusts and passions and all the things we focus on, that only came after the lies first contaminated. So from what does the sanctuary need cleansing? The heavenly sanctuary needs cleansing from lies about God, and historically the position is the recorded sins of the people. What about the spirit temple, the the sanctuary of the human soul? It needs cleansing from? The lies about God and also the defilement of sin, the earthly desires, the selfish lust, evil habits. We need cleansing from our carnal natures too, don't we? Yeah. Both sanctuary need cleansing from the same thing. See a connection. Now, if this is confusing to you, consider it this way. 
uh, how individuals can be temples, but then the whole heavenly temple is made up of individual temples. If that's confusing, think about a supercomputer, which is made up of individual computers in parallel. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You can take a whole bunch of individual computers and connect them together in parallel, and when you do that, you can make one giant supercomputer. If some of those individual computers are corrupted with a virus, what happens to the supercomputer? It's also corrupted. And if you want to cleanse the supercomputer, what do you have to do? Cleanse the individual computers. See? So I'm going to suggest to you cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is the cleansing of individual members who make up the whole. That's what it is. How does Daniel 8, 14, 2300 days, years fit into this? Well, in that chapter, there's a little horn power that's described as defiling the sanctuary. But the little horn power is not the ultimate enemy of God. He's just one of the many faces the enemy of God, the true enemy of God, uses. And so I'll just give you a little, little uh, it's in the notes, but a little comparison between the little horn power that's described in Daniel, um, Daniel uh, uh, 8 and what uh, the New Testament suggests uh, this, this gets its power from. So it says the little horn power grew strong or great, but not by his own power, is what it says in Daniel. It, in Revelation 13, 2, it says he received power from the dragon. That's where he received his power. The, power breathed, the dragon breathed power into him. The little horn power says it threw starry hosts down and trampled on them. In the New Testament in Revelation, it says that the dragon's tail swept one-third of the stars out of heaven. It says that the little horn power set itself up to be like the prince, and Revelation 12 says the dragon fought against Michael, the prince. Um, it takes away the daily sacrifice, the little horn power. And the daily sacrifice is just a way of saying God's continual intercession to heal and restore. God's plan of redemption, the gospel, if you will, the remedy to sin, his working in our heart to cleanse. He takes that away. He takes away the true remedy and he replaces it with a false. Takes away the daily sacrifice. It says in uh, multiple places in the New Testament that the dragon creates a false system of worship. It says he brings the sanctuary low, the little horn power. Interestingly enough, Revelation says that the dragon establishes the synagogue of Satan. We'll tell you what the synagogue of Satan is in a minute. He brings the, and then he throws truth to the ground. The little horn throws truth to the ground and deceives. And of course, the dragon is the father of lies. And it persecutes the saints, the little horn power. In Revelation 12, 13 through 17, it says the dragon persecutes the saints. Do you see how they're, they're connected in every point? And so I'm going to suggest to you that the little horn actually gets its power from the dragon. And the dragon is Satan. So now the question is, what's Satan's power? What's the dragon's power? If he's given his power to the little horn, it'd be important to know what his power is. Well, it says in Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ, or he too, shared their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. It was the power of death. The power of death. What is that power? We're going to do a little Bible math. You want to do some Bible math? We're going to see how we add points together. So John 17.3. Do some Bible math with me. John 17.3. This is Jesus speaking. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou sent. So do the math with me. If eternal life equals knowing God, then eternal death equals not knowing God. So Satan's power is the lies that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So the little horn power has been given the lies of Satan. That's his power. A 
about God and his government. Now, you're going to be blown away when you see what these lies are. It's not going to surprise you if you've been coming to my class. But <laughs> So, the first thing that contaminated the sanctuary in heaven lies about God. first thing that contaminated the sanctuary of the human soul lies about God. And the first lie told in heaven, Star of Ages 761, this is what the people, one of the persons who helped found this whole investigative judgment doctrine, this is what, what was said. In the opening of the great controversy, when? This is, the, this is the first movement. This is the first lies being told. Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, we would not be a God of truth and justice, blah, blah, blah. So the lie that Satan told in heaven, the power given to the little horn, God has a law. There is no natural inherent consequence. It's not the designer that we talk about in here who builds his universe to run in harmony with his own nature. No, it's a set of rules, like an imperial dictator. And if you break those rules, he will punish. Sin must be punished. I can't tell you. In, in the last three weeks, I have had people email me and tell me that in this position, Satan is telling the truth. That, that the reason Satan says every sin must be punished is because it's true. And they're on Satan's side with this. <laughs> And, those are the, and everyone who says that holds penal substitution theology. Penal substitution theology is the, the, the power of, of the dragon, which has come through the little horn system, which corrupts the, the temple, contaminates the sanctuary, and God is waiting for people to be cleansed from it. Let's go with some more evidence. How does this work? The lies told about God and Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve believe broke their trust and confidence in a relationship with God. The continued lies that we believe prevent us from trusting him and being reconciled to him. I mean, do you really think, that, think this through? And if some of you have been in this position, you're no longer in it. Some of you may have never been in it. Some of you may know people who are in it. But you believe in God, and you believe that holiness and justice requires him to use his power to torture you and kill you unless Jesus begs him off on your behalf. Now, you're really glad Jesus is there to protect you. But if you truly believe that, do you trust God? This doctrine undermines trusting God. It corrupts the temple. It corrupts your relationship with God. This penal substitutionary doctrine is, is part of the wine of Babylon that all the world has drunk and the, world is, and the, and the, world, and the nations are, are drunk on this, on this teaching. So the continued lies we believe. If those persistent lies about God are not removed then the tr- uh, by the truth about God that Jesus brought, then Satan's principles of fear and selfishness grow stronger in the heart. The earthly desires, the selfish lust, the evil habits. These destructive elements strengthen within, and instead of Christ-like character developing, we develop the character of the rebel, the satanic character. The soul, the individual created with dignity, nobility of character, in the image of God to represent him to the onlooking universe is being, de- uh, being designed to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit instead of revealing God-like character when you hold these lies becomes a synagogue of Satan. The habitation of devils and reveals a satanic character ultimately ending in desolation and destruction. The abomination that causes desolation is the abomination of lies about God told by Satan in heaven and religious systems on earth that result in the desolation of the image of God in man and the destruction of character and ultimately the desolation of the sanctuary, the sanctuary of the human soul. This is what I think is happening. The abomination is manifested from the dragon who first lied in heaven 
that God is unforgiving. Every sin must be punished. And God's law is imposed. But this abomination is manifested in the church that has accepted the change in God's law as an imperial dictator. This, dis- this distortion leads to multiple false doctrines that contaminate the mind, incite fear, and defile the spirit temple. Multiple false doctrines. I won't go into them all. So God needs to cleanse our minds from the false constructs that cause fear, legalism, penal atonement models, punishing God concepts, and bring us back to trust relation with him so that he can cleanse our hearts from fear and selfishness, restore his law of love. This is a covenant I'll make with them. I'll write my law upon their hearts and minds. Regenerate his Christ's character. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we are called back to worship the designer, the creator, and reject those dictator views. So Daniel, in fact, the little horn power said, this little horn power is said to make war in, in, in Daniel with the saints and be winning the war until an event happens. And that event, Daniel seven twenty one and 22. This is the NIV that I'll read from first. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. This is the NIV version. The above rendering is one those who prefer that imposed impose law model like that, that translation. Here's the King James Version. See, see if it, you notice the difference. Remember, it was until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints. This is the King James. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Is there a difference? Big difference. Well, which is the more accurate translation? The Hebrew word, pronounced, actually means, you look up the lexicon, to give or to impart. Why would the saints need God to impart to our minds judgment, discernment, the ability to, to, to make right conclusions? Why would, he, why would the saints need this? Because the horn is waging war. We're in a war. What kind of war? Paul tells us. So we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does the weapons we fight with. are not carnal. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And take captive every thought. The little horn power gets his power from the dragon. His power is lies about God. This little horn power tells lies about God that corrupts the church and can defile the sanctuary. And we are losing, if you look at the dark ages, instead of the church going out and ministering and sacrificing and giving, it went out into the crusades. It had the inquisition. It burned people at the stake. We are losing this war because we have a corrupt God concept that we think it's godly to kill people in his name. Mm-hmm. And so... We're losing until the day comes that judgment is given to the saints. Until we have the capacity to see the truth. Paul brings it even tighter for us. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2-4. through Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the end of time, the second coming of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs, the man of lawlessness. Who's that man of lawlessness? That's that little horn power, right? Same power is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is, Paul's writing this after Christ's resurrection. He's writing this after Christ's ascension. And he's saying that sometime after this, there's going to be a, a little horn, uh, there's going to be a, a man of sin that's going to rise and he's going to oppose God and he's going to set himself up in God's temples. Paul's saying that one day there's going to be a human being that comes up on the earth who's going to, who's going to get a spaceship and go up into heaven and knock Christ off his throne in heaven and sit and rule in that temple in heaven. Is that what he's saying? No. So what temple is he talking about? 
when he says he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming, what temple? It's this temple. And how did he do it? Because he set himself up. Think about Christianity. what, What God concept is taught. God, in order to be just, must punish sin, just like that first lie. Every sin has to be punished. And we read, how many were at the seminar last week? Did you see the quotes last week we had up there where, they, where, where it's taught in Christianity that God killed Jesus at the cross? And when you have that view, then you've got God in the role of murderer and killer and executioner. When it's very clear the scripture is Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Death doesn't come out from God, it comes out from Satan. God is a source of life. And as long as we conceive of God as a source of death, pain, suffering inflicted upon his creatures, we can't trust him. Our sanctuaries can't be cleansed. Paul's describing the same event as Daniel 7, when evil powers rise up against the saints and oppose God, and it is a spiritual war, a war in your minds over methods, principles, motives, character. Therefore, the cleansing has to happen there as well. So we've identified two sanctuaries, sanctuary in heaven, sanctuary of the human soul, both defiled by lies about God, both defiled by you know, our sinfulness and our own characters, our own hearts, and um, the, the spirit temple in heaven having a, a record of our current life. But what's the connection between sin and us and the record in heaven? I want you to hear this. This is also from uh, one of the founders. It's out of uh, Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce, page 62. Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist, what, the, what do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern, Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character? Notice, robes of what? Character, and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is out of Sixth Bible Commentary 1093. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God, there to be preserved in the resurrection. Every man will have his own character. So what, what, when you think about those record books in heaven, what's being recorded there? A list of, of deeds? Or your own individuality, your identity, your character, your personhood. That's what's being recorded there. Thus, cleansing of the record books in heaven can only happen through the avenue of your heart. The way you get something written in your record book in heaven is to have it written upon your heart. That's why I write my laws on your heart and mind. And when you have your heart and mind renewed, your record in heaven is renewed. This is the pathway. This is the avenue. So, we've identified two two sanctuaries, one in heaven, one here. Both been defiled by lies. Both been defiled by sinfulness in us. Both need cleansing. Now the next question is, what cleanses it? What and who cleanses? Well, you guys are so good. You're already going straight for the right answer instead of the metaphor. That's good. See, normally people say the blood of Jesus, right? And that is the answer metaphorically in the symbol system. That is the right answer in the symbols. But the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh. 
It's to be applied within the believer. And this is out of Fundamentals of Christian Education 378. In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he interprets as receiving and doing his word. And Christ Object Lessons 102, the leaven of truth works a change in the whole man making the coarse refined, the rough, gentle, the selfish, generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. So you're right, the truth. The truth about God destroys lies, wins to trust. When we trust God again, we open the heart, and guess what's poured into us? When you open your heart to God, what's he pour in? His spirit, his character. He pours his love into our hearts, it says in Romans 5, 5. But does he pour his love into the heart that's closed to him? And when you open the heart to somebody you don't trust, that you believe lies about, Now get this quote. This is a great controversy, 426. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days is presented in Daniel 7.13 and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi 3.1-3 through 3 are descriptions of the same event. Do you use all three texts when you think of Daniel 8.14? Do you put them all together? Say, hey, they're all three describing the exact same thing. All the same thing. Well, let's start with the first one real quick. Daniel 8, 14, 2300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. If you look up in the Bible commentary, the word cleansed actually is more accurately translated justified or set right. Justified. The sanctuary will be justified, set right. You know, that's what justification means. When you justify the margins on your Word document, you take things out of order and put them in order. It sets things in the right way. So the question then is, in this controversy, in this sinful uh, process that we're in, what is it that's out of harmony, out of line, that needs to be set right? Our characters. We, our hearts, our minds, our motives. We are out of harmony from God's design, and we need to be set right with God again. That's what needs to be happened. So Daniel 8, 14, 2200 days, and the sanctuary will be set right. I will put it right again. The heart and character. Well, let's see. Remember all three of those texts, the same event? Here's Malachi 3, 1 through 3. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, who can endure the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, launderer's soap. He will refine and, pu- uh, he will fr- refine and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold. So if that's the same event and you put them together, what's being cleansed? The record books in heaven. But that's what we're told. We are told, if you read the traditional view of this, that there's a committee sitting up there right now, and they're digging through these crusty old stale books, and they're going through a list of misdeeds, and they're deciding who, who has, has that gone through the proper, proper process of applying for forgiveness and having that stamped by their record book in heaven. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. Twenty-three hundred days, things should be justified or set right. Purify the Levites. And then there's another text that describes the same thing. Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days took his seat. The books were open. The court was seated. The books were open. And this is, uh, is used to say they're going to sit in judgment. But you know that's all read in. You go, back, you go back to Daniel. You won't find anything in Daniel about petitioners, investigations, judgments, punishments, exonerations, uh, tribunals. You won't find anything about a sinner standing before the, the judgment seat of God in Daniel. It's not there. You have books being opened. 
But then you actually have an event happening following the opening of the books. An event happens. But that event, well, guess what that event is? Well, before I even go to the event, let me just contrast again. How do you, how, when you read the Bible, what lens are you looking through? Imposed law model? Natural law model. If you look through imposed law model, then the books in heaven, have, what's in those? Lists of sins. Bad behaviors, things you've done wrong that need to be punished or you need to be forgiven for. That's what's in those books. If you have the designer view, books have a record of God's, of, of our character and God's actions working in our lives. That's what's recorded there. Uh, in the imposed view, heaven is investigating the books to investigate the, the, the sinners. In the designer view, the sinners are investigating God to see whether they can trust him. In the imposed view, God is determining, through his investigations, he's determining who's innocent and who's guilty, who's saved and who's not savable. In the designer view, sinners are determining whether they can trust God. Which is more likely? You know, God is love, right? What's it say? Is God loving or is God love? There's a difference. You and I can be loving, but we are not love. God is love. And Corinthians says that love has certain ways of functioning. Love keeps long records of wrongs. Is that what it says? It says love keeps no record of wrong. But we teach God has this record with all of our wrongs in it that he's looking at and he's going to punish us by. It's the, it is the lie of the serpent coming through the little horn power that's corrupted the church and defiled the sanctuary that needs to be cleansed. doesn't mean there's not records. There are. But they've been misconstrued. This is what Paul said. Oh, let me tell you a story. You guys have heard it before, but it fits at this point in time. When I was in um, med schools doing an ER rotation, actually here at Erlanger, and there was a, a helicopter crash out at Level Field. And uh, they brought in um, all the victims of the crash to our ER. And uh, everybody was alert and conscious when they came in. And we started doing our various treatments on them. And one lady had fractured pelvis, fractured femurs. And she needed to, um, and she was bleeding into the, the spaces. She wasn't bleeding out of her body, but she's bleeding into the, the interstitial spaces, the spaces between the tissues. And she still can bleed to death inside her body when you have these big bones broken. And she needed a blood transfusion and surgery. But she was awake, alert understood her situation, and communicated to us that she was Jehovah's Witness. And she would not take a blood transfusion. Once we discovered that, we knew that this was quite serious. And we started, to, we started giving her, she would take IV fluids. If she bled out of her body, she would take her own blood back in a, in a, in a, in a recycler, if we could get that to happen, she would do that. But she would not take any blood products. And so the nurses began to plead with her. The doctors pled with her. Us lowly plebe medical students pled with her. Uh, at some point in time, they brought the hospital chaplain down to plead with her. And when it became more serious and we knew what direction this was going, they brought the hospital administrator and hospital lawyer down to plead with her and make sure that she understood what she was choosing. And, 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 and by the way, the entire time that this was going on, there was one nurse in that room that never left to do one thing. Guess what that one nurse was doing? Doctor. Writing, 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 recording everything that everyone was saying in that room, writing copious, copious records are being kept. We saved everyone in that helicopter crash except for that woman. She died. Now, when the family sues, and let's just say she was the only African American. Let's just say that for our example. And everyone else was saved, but this one was not. 
And the family comes and sues. You saved all those white people. You don't care for the, the blacks in our community like you. And these allegations and stuff come out. What will then come into evidence? The records will come into evidence. Will they come into evidence to condemn the woman? They won't come in to condemn her at all. Who do they, what do they come in for? To exonerate those trying to save. These are the purpose of the heavenly records. God will do everything for everyone and it will be proven that those lost are only lost because they refused over and over and over and over again and God sent his angels to record in great detail everything that he's done for them and it will be demonstrated that they are lost not at God's hands and those records are not there to punish or judge by to prove God's innocence. You see, and this is, this is not what's presented because our church has been infected with this lie of Rome that comes from the dragon, that God is an imperial dictator who puts laws upon us and he must punish and we have to have an investigation for punishment's sake. How can he cleanse his temple when we hold to these lies? So here's a, out of Paul, Paul, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. King James Version says, God forbid, yea, let uh, God be true and every man a liar as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. That's old King James. New American Standard Bible. Um, May it never be, rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Good news. Certainly not. God must be true, even though every human being is a liar. As the scripture says, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. God is being tried. This is what's happening. The investigative judgment is for us to investigate. The reason it's 2,300 years is because Daniel was given a vision. He said, Hey, and if you look at that vision, it's a very long, there's a lot of stuff in that vision. But in this vision, this is what you got. You've got the people of Israel. You have a 490 years are cut off for that people. And in that time, the Messiah will come and do away with the oblations and sacrifices. And he will provide remedy for sin. But then there will be a counter. There will be an opposition. That, That little horn power will rise up to war against the saints, to oppose what Christ has done. The man of sin will come along. He will be given power from the dragon, the power of lies to corrupt and misrepresent everything Christ has done, to turn it instead of a gift to heal and to restore into an appeasement to a angry and wrathful God. And the, and, and the, and the sanctuary will be corrupted. And it will be 2300 years before enough truth is recovered that the sanctuary of the human soul, the minds of men, can be cleansed from these lies. That's what he was shown, at least in my view. And this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. What time might that be referring to? Is it possible, and this is a stretch, I know it's a stretch, but is it possible that it could be referring to the longest time prophecy in scripture this is the covenant i will make with them after that time i will write my law in their minds and put it upon their hearts i will be their god they will be my people no longer will a man teach his neighbor or his brother say know the lord because they will all know me this is life eternal that they might know you the only truth the lies have been eradicated the lies of satan has been blown away they are no longer operating. We are back at one mint. Um, back at one mint. Um, imagine this. One, one more metaphor and we'll close up. And there's stuff in, and we need to get to the lessons. I got stuff in my notes. If you're going to go to the notes, I got stuff from Sabbath all the way through Friday in the notes, but we didn't quite get to Sabbath yet. Um, 
All this is my notes. Okay? Um, let me, one more metaphor. Imagine your child has metastatic cancer. You've heard it before, but it fits again with this investigative judgment. And it's all over their body. The doctors say there's nothing they can do. They're going to die. And, um, but you've heard of a doctor out west that everybody goes with a clean bill of health. So you take your child, you, and when you go, you take the medical records. The medical records have the MRIs, the pathology reports, the CAT scans showing all this extent of disease and devastation. And you go to the doctor, and you hand him the records, and the doctor takes the records, opens them up, pulls out all the record of disease, sticks in blank white sheets of paper, and says, here, now, no more record of disease. You're going home. Are you happy with that? You understand that's our current Adventist investigative judgment. That God is in heaven and he's opening your books and he's taking out the records of sin and he's sticking in clean sheets. He's cleansing the books. It's a fraud. It's a lie. But what happens is after he looks at the book, sees the record of disease, the doctor gets up and goes to your child and intervenes in the child with a remedy that puts the cancer into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Cancer remits back. The cancer cells remit back to their pre-cancerous healthy state. Without what Christ has provided for us, our characters cannot remit back to the condition that Christ originally made mankind in in the beginning. We can't do that. And so... The records will show the extent of the disease. The records will also show the remedy being applied in the, in the actual child. And the records will now show the cancer's in remission. So how we cleanse our heavenly records is by partaking of Jesus Christ right here. Amen. That's how it works. And thus, signs of the times, April 17, 1901. Get your mind around this. We're talking about that heavenly sanctuary. The cases of all are pending in the heavenly sanctuary. Day by day, angels of God are watching the development of character. All defects must be remedied. The character must be assimilated to the character of Christ. At an infinite cost, a fountain has been prepared for our cleansing. In the blood of the Son of God, we may wash our garments of character and make them white. Do you see how we have been impaired in fulfilling our mission as a church to prepare the world for Christ's return because our sanctuaries have not been cleansed. They've been corrupted by this imperial penal legal system that has its origins in the opening of the controversy from the father of lies himself. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We pray that you will cleanse our sanctuary, bring the truth to bear, write the law on our hearts and minds, and give us power to represent you faithfully in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Don't go anywhere. Dean, come out here for a minute. Stand front and center. Report. Come and Reason ministry started as a class in uh, first quarter 2006, and that year we recorded our own. Some of you were there. A few of you were there. And we recorded our own classes um, that year on a little tiny pocket MP3 player about this big. And in 2007, Dean came along and said, hey, I can help you with your audio. And if you want to see the difference, go to our archives on our website, to our Bible study archives, listen to 2006 and listen to 2007, and you will notice a world of difference. Because Dean initially came, and that was the first quarter, 2007. He built his own little, um, you know, audio soundboard. And then he oversaw the, um, which markedly improved our quality. He oversaw the upgrade of our current recording equipment, added the video, added the live stream webcast. He built our website, spends countless hours each week maintaining and updating it and adding content as well as keeping our Facebook page. Dean, along with Christy and Tamara, uh, created our logo. Don't you love our logo? This, this behind us here, Dean designed this. 
Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? And we use this at our various programs we go to. Um, each week, Dean edits and codes, uploads the Bible study of the various formats, MP3, video, podcasts. He created the cover for our various DVD sets out there and did the editing and layout and encoding. He created our cards and our flyers and our ad- advertisements. Uh, if you heard on the radio our advertisements over the last month for the um, God in Your Brain seminar, Dean prepared those advertisements and those radios. If you've seen the t- TV ads on 3ABN, Dean made those TV ads. And last week, Dean directed and recorded the God in Your Brain seminar. And this week, he's already edited and encoded it and has it available on YouTube. And the DVDs are right here. Yes, he's got them ready to be made up. (laughs) Dean has trained our technical staff to do the equipment. And more than any other person, Dean has helped open countless avenues of communication, improve the quality of our audio, video, and print materials throughout, and through his efforts, thousands, literally thousands of people have been reached with the good news about God's character of love that would otherwise never have heard this message. And we are truly blessed to have Dean as part of our ministry. So it's with great honor that I present Dean an award today. And you guys go ahead and thank Dean with me. And we have an award for Dean today. Okay. And it says, uh, with love and appreciation to Dean Scott for his dedication and brilliance in enhancing and promoting Common Reason Ministries 2013 and our logo on the side. There you go, Dean. Thank you. Did you want to say anything? No. Nope. <laughs> Okay. Uh, uh, they're in the notes. All this is in the notes. So <laughs> I can put it there. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you all. <laughs>